Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome to We Earth Radio. This is your host, Michael Stone, and today we're going to be talking about Ramdas. Hard to imagine that you don't know who Ramdas is, but he was an American spiritual teacher, psychologist, and author. And in 1967, he traveled to India and became a discipline of the Guru Neem Karoli Baba, who gave him the name Ramdas, which means a servant of Ram. And we are blessed today to have someone who was his soul friend for many years. That's Rameshwar Das. He's a writer and photographer. And he met Ram Das in 1967. He was inspired to go to India and was then given the name Rameshwar Das by Neem Karoli Baba also. So Ramesh, welcome to uh, our new show here. Yeah, congratulations, Michael. We have a history together between Ramdas and Mirabai Bush and, you know, these incarnations of books coming along. Yeah, Mirabai sends her regards, by the oh, way. Oh, thank you. She's such a love. Yeah, so let's just start out talking about you meeting. You were a student and Ramdas came to speak, I think, 1968 or something like that. Yeah, 68. And, yeah, talk a little bit about your first meeting there. Uh, well, I was in school at Wesleyan University in Connecticut, where Ramdas had actually done his uh, master's degree in psychology. Some of the his students were by then teaching psychology at Wesleyan. He had been fired from Harvard at that point, and had been, you know, gained some notoriety through the psychedelic work. So they wrote to him asking him to come and lecture on campus. And he got the letter in India, and which nobody really knew where he was at that point. He was uh, sequestered in the Himalayas. So uh, when he returned to the States in, I think it was early March of 68, Wesleyan was the first place that he did a talk. You know, I was expecting the annals of psychedelia and uh, uh, better living through modern chemistry. Instead, in, in March, which was in Connecticut at in that time, was uh, basically frozen mud. This guy walks in with a long beard, barefoot, wearing a white dress. I think pretty much everyone at that point was, you know, kind of floored that uh, that might be uh, the uh, persona we were going to encounter that evening instead of the Harvard professor. He started speaking at uh, some time after 7, maybe 7.30 in the evening, and he it was in a, a lounge, you know, kind of a library area. And he spoke until uh, 3 in the morning. And after a while, someone had turned out the lights, and there was just his voice 
coming out of the uh, darkness. It was uh, transformational for me in the sense that I think uh, when I got to India a couple of years later and saw Ramdas Guru, it was very clear to me that the Guru had come through him. It was just like, you know, a straight transmission. But I, I thought it was Ramdas. And I, I mean, it was too. It was Ramdas being so thoroughly uh, present and, you know, completely immersed in uh, the yoga training that he had undergone for six months. And keep in mind, he'd been up at this little ashram in the Himalayas for six months, mostly on silence. And even if he wasn't silent, there was nobody who knew English where he was. He had been intensively studying yoga and meditation for all that time. And he had a lot of, uh, you know, what you would call shakti or spiritual energy built up. It was uh, quite an infusion at that moment for me, and it really altered my whole life trajectory. It took you to India to uh, meet Maharaji. Yeah, it got me out of the draft first, actually. (laughs) Oh, did it? (laughs) You're lucky. (laughs) Yeah, I was. (laughs) I got pigs all over the planet. That's another story. It's probably a good one. But (laughs) But I'd, I'd love to hear about your experience of meeting Maharaji, that you know, you got inspired by Ramdas, but you ended up going to India. What was your personal experience of, of meeting him? Well, I think before I met Ramdas, I really had no thought about going to India. I, I had studied some Eastern philosophy and read some both Indian and Chinese and Taoist, Buddhist philosophy, and I was very interested at that point, but uh, India had no great attraction for me until I re- met Ramdas, and then uh, it was uh, some kind of magnetic force. It felt like a, a very, uh, like uh, the rails were greased a bit. But when I I got there, we managed to uh, find Maharaji, and, and Ramdas uh, arranged for uh, three of us to ask uh, permission to... Uh, come and see Maharaji, which he was not, uh, he'd been told by Maharaji, don't tell anybody about me. Of course, all he did was talk about Maharaji, but he did not say his name or where he was. Uh, But he, uh, there were three of us, myself and uh, uh, Krishnadas, who was not yet Krishnadas, and a guy named Danny Goldman, who wrote a book years later called Emotional Intelligence, which was a bestseller. The three of us got sort of permission to go, which is another story also. But <laughs> I'm just amazed in reading the new book, Being Ramdas, and it's just such an amazing story. But what was really incredible was the number of people that he touched and knew in his life. I was just astounded. I mean, many I, I knew some of the contacts with people like Timothy Leary and and Mm -hmm. others during that era, but he was so connected. And that was even true in Maui when, you know, I know people that were coming to visit him all the time. Uh, We had a wonderful time together when we did an interview. That must have been almost 10 years ago now. Yeah, he, he accompanied on Skype, I think, at that point. 
Well, uh, when that I was, was when we I did the one yeah. in person. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was amazing being in that beautiful place that um, people had pulled together and gotten because he didn't have any money left. And But let's go back a little bit to the early years. I think it's always interesting when somebody becomes so well-known and makes such an impact on society as the original uh, Be Here Now certainly was a Bible during that time for the new culture. But I'd love to hear a little bit about his early life, his family, his parents and brothers. And uh, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that and how you felt that might have shaped his, his life and, and what he ended up doing. You know, it was interesting doing this memoir and really going through his whole life story because I think it was kind of a, a review for him that allowed him to look at that karma from his, especially from his early life. You know, some of it was painful. And some of it he felt probably like he had done as well as he could have with it when he looked back. And I think it allowed him to let it go a bit. Yeah, to be complete, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was a, I mean, aside from what you see in the book, it was a process um, which continued over most of a decade. And um, we would sit together and talk, and I was essentially taking dictation because he spoke so slowly because of the speech aphasia from the stroke. I, re- so, I remember um, editing the show that we did yeah, together it was in Hawaii. Tough, a tough edit. It was uh, it came out well, but it was uh, we were at least three or four hours of just having a wonderful time. But it was it was an interesting yeah. edit. <laughs> Wavy Gravy, uh, the uh, clown prince of the hog farm, had a great phrase about him. He said, uh, Ramdas used to be the master of the one-liner. Now he's the master of the ocean liner. (laughs) Leave it to Wavy Gravy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so it was very conflicted. I mean, he came from a family with uh, that had been quite successful and his father was the head of the a railroad and very active in in uh, politics and uh, social things as was his mm-hmm. mother um, his mother came from a very wealthy family but his father had grown up dirt poor first uh, well second generation of uh, poor immigrants from Europe so his father really had you know, worked hard to get where he was. I think he really instilled that need to succeed in Ramdas, in Richard. And even though Ramdas really rebelled against what his father, his father's name was George, uh, what George had in mind for him, George wanted him to be a, a doctor or a lawyer or something that would, you know, have some stature and make some money. And Ramdas chose uh, psychology at that point, and social psychology at that, which was barely even a discipline at that stage. In the this is the forties when he was in college. He went to college at uh, Tufts outside of Boston, which had a great medical school. And the, the thinking was that he would be in the medical school, and he was a shoe in for that, even though he didn't like chemistry or biology and was not very interested in being a doctor. There's a fun scene in the book where uh, the president of Tufts uh, calls him in after Ramdas' father had called him 
he uh, gets the head of the medical school on the phone. And he says, I, I got Richard Alpert uh, here, George Alpert's son. We, do you have a place for him in the medical school? You know, no applications, nothing. He hangs up the phone and he says, you're in. And Ramdas looks at him and says, I wouldn't go there if you paid me. <laughs> and the president of Tufts, who later, I think, became the head of the Smithsonian or something like that. He, he said, uh, you're making a big mistake. And Ramdas walked out and he became a social psychologist and, you know, through various graduate degrees, ended up at Stanford and then Harvard. Yeah, let's talk about the Harvard days with uh, the psilocybin, the LSD, working with Tim Leary, and they called themselves the Intronauts. I love that name. Yeah, yeah, that was good. Well, they were, uh, you know, I, I think especially in the uh, early days of that Harvard, it was first the Harvard psilocybin project and then became the Harvard psychedelic project as they there was a, a genuine sense that they were really exploring the frontiers of the mind. And and as they got into it, they realized it was not just the mind, but it had this deep spiritual uh, dimension that ultimately did not fit into uh, academia very well. <laughs> Although they did things like, uh, you know, the... Uh, You've heard of the Good Friday experiment, mm -hmm. where they gave uh, psilocybin to divinity students uh, on a, a Good Friday, and they uh, were down in the crypt of a, a chapel. I think it's called the Marsh Chapel at Boston University. It was a double-blind experiment. They could, they, neither the experimenters nor the subjects knew who was getting psilocybin and who was getting a placebo. The people who got psilocybin had a genuinely mystical experience of the Good Friday sermon and their vision of divinity in that time. It was probably the highest profile experiment that they did, and, and it's still 25 years later, somebody did a, actually it was Rick Doblin, he now runs MAPS, psychedelic uh, research group. He re-interviewed the people who had had psilocybin, and, and many of them were still very much on the path in one form or another. And many of them said it was the single most formative experience in their spiritual lives. But they ran afoul of the Harvard authorities finally. And, uh, Harvard, I think, saw them as a big liability. Not just the Harvard <laughs> authorities, but... <laughs> well, later Leary had legal problems too. It's interesting that uh, Ramdas never got arrested. Yeah, that is interesting. And uh, there is certainly, you know, as you read through, uh, it's good, you know, nobody's bringing posthumous charges. I, I, it just takes me back to Maharishi going there and then giving him acid, not once, but twice, doses that were higher than any of us ever took. And, and I was in that you know, yeah. here also. Yeah. And, and, it's like enough uh, for three people. Good Exactly. Style. And he just, Neem, Neem Karoli Baba just sat there, I guess. I, I mean, didn't have any seeming effect. No. And I mean, the, the second time he, he really put Ramdas on also. 
Yeah, right. He hid under the blanket. <laughs> First he said, is this going to make me crazy? And Ram Dass said, yeah, probably. And uh, he goes under his blanket and he comes up, uh, you know, sometime later, uh, looking completely mad with his eyes rolling and his tongue hanging out, and, you know, like. And uh, Ram Dass is like, uh, oh, no, I've killed my guru. I've, you know, what have I done? And Maharaji just snapped right past it and, you know, went back to being completely normal. Whatever normal was for Maharaji, which was, you know, just carrying on very ordinary conversations with whoever was there, apparently. Yeah. That's something about the spirituality of of Ramdas himself was there was always a lightness. It was never heavy. It was really the bhakti tradition, the heart tradition, the love tradition that exuded from him, even in his most conflicted, and he was yeah. often conflicted both outwardly, his sexual orientation, and inwardly, whether he was doing the right thing or who he was, or, you know, all of those things were going on. And yet, he just exuded love. Yeah, and and I think you know he he did that, and especially near the end of his life, I, I felt like he was just immersing himself in a, an ocean of love, and he, especially near the last years, he was speaking less and just being quiet with people, and there was just this. Uh, uh, oceanic feeling of being immersed in love together. You said really came through was the lightheartedness. And I think part of that was Ramdas and, and part was Maharaji's cosmic humor. And uh, he, he was, it was pretty light. And the, the hallmark of uh, Maharaji's teaching were these kind of absurd situations that you would find yourself in. I, I think Ramdas probably most acutely. At first, Maharaji would giggle about them, and he had this kind of cosmic giggle that was very uh, endearing. And I think also Ramdas kind of, you know, used to tell funny stories a lot mm-hmm. in his earlier years lecture. I think he found that humor was a really great way of transmitting deep teachings. Yes, I'm, I'm sure that he did. You know, personally also, when we were hanging out doing the book, he was very, uh, it was pretty amusing. We laughed a lot. How long did it take you? Uh, he had just finished that other book. Were yeah. you working on that long before that, or did you start this after the last book? Uh, we started this... Uh, Pretty soon, I mean, when I, when I saw you, when I we talked the last time, when Be Love Now had just come out, we had started the ball rolling, at least I had. He didn't really want to do this book. Yeah. At least originally. And then when we got into it, I think he really enjoyed the process immensely. I have a sense there was some healing in that also. Yeah. You know, Ramesh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, anytime you go back, and tell your story, and you're able to witness it from a different perspective, I, w- I would think that would have been very healing for him. 
Even I think though, it was. Yeah. And, sure. and you know, as you know, uh, witnessing was a, a significant part of his teaching. Yes. That feeling of uh, looking at yourself from that other soul level of yourself. And I, I think it did release, especially some of the painful family karma and, you know, things around his sexuality that he had wrestled with for uh, decades. Yeah. I want to go back just to so many, many things that my favorite chapter is, I think it's chapter 34 towards the very end, that I want to make sure we spend some time uh, talking about because it's just such a juicy chapter. But I... I wanted to go back to when Ramdas went to India, he was not looking for anything like that. And he actually was kind of down on Hinduism and, and, mm-hmm. and the whole area. And that one, the night before, when he was thinking about his mother who died from a spleen, then he's in this group the first time he's with Maharaji and all of a sudden he says, you were under the stars last night. You, you were thinking about your mother and, and she died and, uh, her stomach and spleen. And, and he said the word spleen in English. Yeah. And I just, that must have been so totally mind boggling. And, and when he talks about it and he's talked about this for years too. That he thought, oh my God, if he knows this about me, he knows everything mm-hmm. else. Now, what a freedom to be with somebody when you know they know everything about you. The good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. I can't imagine. Did you have a similar kind of experience with him to that? Much subtler in my case. Uh-huh. I, I kind of knew that from Ramdas when I went. And that was certainly part of what the pull to Maharaji was. But two things. I mean, the, what a, I found when I was with Maharaji, he, he would just make allusions to things. Like uh, he allowed us to come, you know, maybe three times a week, two or three times a week. And the other rest of the time, he sent us back to the nearby town. And we stayed at a hotel that was owned by some devotees. And we used to go uh the town is built around a little lake and uh we'd go out for boat rides and uh you know poke around the town and one day we came back to see him at the temple and he said you were out on the lake last night you were talking about me and you were and he made this you know like smoking uh <laughs> gesture and we were getting stoned out on the lake. <laughs> and he went, hey. <laughs> no, no more smoking. Which didn't stop us for quite some time, but that has finally fallen away. Um, right. And then another time, we, you know, we were poking around the town uh, looking. Uh, there was a, a photo shop that had some pictures of Maharaji. They, they, you know, he was a, a local selling point. We were uh, looking at the photos of him in the shop. The next day we went to see him at the temple, and uh, he said, uh, you were looking at photos of me? And, you know, it was just clear that uh, he was 
Not that he was monitoring us or anything like that. It was just that it was this was all accessible to him. It's kind of omnipresent. Yeah. yeah. That is the probably the most accurate term for it. <laughs> I I you know as as the time that we were with him went by, I think this shift in point of view continued. And I just trying to imagine what his consciousness and awareness was like compared to, you know, ours, it was, you know, we, we had like the tunnel vision and he had the stereoscopic uh, 3D, 360 view. The, the other thing that was always absolutely uh, astonishing about being with him was his timing. Uh, there were, uh, there's a piece in, in the, book about Ramdas meeting him in Brindavan after some time and Maharaji said that he would meet him there and they Krishnadas was driving him in a van I, I wasn't there that uh, moment but and they pull into the ashram at Brindavan where they were expecting to meet Maharaji and the caretaker of the ashram comes out and says no Maharaji's not here hasn't been here for months must be up in the hills and they're crestfallen and you know finally they're getting back in the car and Krishnas is just turning the key in the ignition and this little Fiat sedan screeches to a halt next to them and Maharaji gets out <laughs> it's <is the> impeccable <laughs> his entrance yeah <laughs> that's brilliant and uh, many moments like that that yeah. uh, you know he could only have done if he uh, was not in time the way we are in time. I think it's interesting how Ramdas developed the capacity to see himself through Maharaji's eyes as someone that's worthy of love. Yeah, that was actually how I sold him on doing the book. I said, okay, we're going to look at your life as if through Maharaji's eyes. Mm. And he thought about that and he said, okay. Because <laughs> he, he didn't want to, you know, he wasn't into going back, you know, through his lifetime and making a narrative out of it. And uh, he didn't want to, especially he didn't want to hurt other people that he might have had negative things to say about. And, and um, he wasn't glorifying his own lifetime and he was really into being in the present moment yeah he didn't care about the past or the future he was just here but reading this book myself and i'm sure for other people that this journey you know you can't not look at your own journey and and read this i mean we all have yeah. on the spiritual path we all have the obstacles of of lust of anger of delusion of greed and He's so authentic about meeting those areas and also that whole area of power, the fascination with and the seduction of power and yeah. how he learned from Muktananda and Joy to Joya to, and, and Joya, uh, Trumpa I mean. also. And Trumpa, Trumpa, Rumpa, Trumpa. Rumpa, yeah. yeah. To really learn to embrace those areas and to witness them, which is a way I think more and more now in psychology and the latest thinking on things like trauma and 
different perspectives on karma that the witnessing is the integration. It's so much we're trying to get rid of these things that like something's broken rather Mm -hmm. than to witness and embrace, which allows us to integrate them. The more you try to get rid of something, the more it gets stuck. Because if you're in the moment, why would you get rid of anything? Yeah. (laughs) I I think that that's uh, really true. And I I think that all of the spiritual paths, especially mindfulness, have spawned uh, a whole different view of psychology. And, and, uh, you know, people like Danny Goleman and uh, Mark Epstein, who did the trauma of everyday life not so long ago. You know, the the view of that embrace and Buddhist teachers like Sharon Salzberg and uh, Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield who teach Vipassana in that embracing way. And I I think the understanding that you crystallized of if you push it away, it gains force is really changed the way we view this. And we're trying to give it to kids now, too, with, you know, the social emotional learning that's coming into grade schools yeah amazing I I had that <laughs> it's so easy to get caught up in all the what we don't want and what's wrong in the world and climate change and inequality and political and social unrest and war all these things that make the headlines but we don't see that there's a whole another thing going on underneath that that's an awakening yeah. That's spreading more and more. I mean, you and I have been on this path a long time. One of the things that's always been the biggest challenge for me and people that I work with is seeing suffering as part of the divine plan. Mm -hmm. Many of us feel we can't even be happy because there's so much suffering in the world. And that's that's a real, you know, Joseph Campbell said... uh, can we be joyful in the face of the suffering of the world? And talk a little bit about Ram Dass's sense of suffering as a part of the divine plan. Well, I think uh, in the earlier part of his teaching, his spiritual teaching, and that the, up through the 80s, and when he began to really encounter suffering. I mean, he worked a lot with AIDS patients, for instance. Even though he was not uh, very out at that point, I think he saw the there but for the grace go I quality of that. And that really made an impression on him. And then working with Seva and traveling to places like Guatemala that had been ravaged by, you know, repressive governments and wars and seeing the suffering of people who just, you know, had been decimated in their culture and their lives there. I think that brought home the the Buddhist teaching that he had started studying, you know, in India. We all took Goenka courses in Bodhgaya, with, which Sharon and Joseph were also at, at that time. And, you know, the, the uh, triple gem of Dukkha, Anitya, Anatta, of uh, suffering and impermanence and no real self, was 
you know, deeply embedded at that time, but the experience of it later really changed him, I think. And when he had the stroke, which you can see in that uh, film that Mickey Lemley made about him called Fierce Grace, that was really uh, almost took him through the bottom. You know, he really, he said, uh, and he talks about it in the book about how he lost faith and that that was even worse than the uh, physical effects of the stroke, which basically eliminated his previous identity as, you know, the, the gift of gab and the, uh, his peripatetic, you know, teaching, lecturing and being with people and giving retreats and going on missions for Seva, traveling all the time. Suddenly he's like, you know, cut off. Yeah, I think also, you know, his his relationship from the very beginning with death and the evolution with the Tibetan Book of the Death and mm -hmm. then the death, seeing it as a rite of passage and then the death work, the hospice work that he did. Yeah. He did quite a bit of. Yeah. Um, more than is recorded, I think. In yeah. Yeah, that's what I suspected. So he saw death as a rite of passage, really. Yeah, and and he, you know, I it, being with him when he died was, which is the only time I've actually been with someone when they left their body at that moment, and it was not a moment; it was a, you know, period of minutes. That had such a profound impression on me, and and he was with many many people as they died. And I, I think he really came to understand that in his cells, in his dreams, in, you know, the many dimensions of his awareness. So that that became a powerful part of the teaching that he's given to this uh, culture. And he really, he did, as you're saying, you know, he worked to change the way people die in this culture. He worked with uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in that early days of hospice movement, which is now part of the medical system, for gosh sakes. He started a, a place in Santa Fe that was a, a, a dying center where people could come and die. And the environment they created was so embracing and loving that people would come and they didn't die. They just felt so supported that they didn't <laughs> want to leave. <laughs> so... Uh, and that's, that work is being carried on by many people. Stephen Levine did a lot in that. And Dale Borglum, uh, who runs the Living Dying Project in the Bay Area, was part of that uh, original. Uh, he ran the Dying Center at Santa Fe, and he's continued that work as an in-home you know, project around that Bay Area. And I think it's you know changed a, a lot of the way we see death and the, you know, as you alluded to earlier, the quality of suffering and how that affects the perception of the spiritual. Yeah. Which we all have to deal with. I mean, in the, in the middle of this book project, my daughter was killed when she was oh, 13 sorry. years old. Oh, sorry, Ramesh. Yeah, that's the worst. Mm -hmm. I mean, I reading about all this in the newspapers and the, the hundred times 9-11 that uh, has occurred in the 
pandemic in just in the States is overwhelming. But when you have that, you know, I, I think I had a heart attack when I heard it. And I was out working with Ramdas when it happened. When we heard she hadn't made it, made it out of the trauma surgery, I said to him, she didn't get to finish her life. And he looked me straight in the eye and said, yes, she did. And that, uh, that moment brought me out of, you know, my just my very personal catastrophe, heartbreak, destruction, and just the, the realization of uh, where he was coming from as being an incarnate being, and this is not all there is. And that was visceral, you know, and, and he had brought it into that level of being. One of the things that you wrote about in the book, and I'm saying you wrote, but I know he was dictating, but you made the book. <laughs> yeah, no, it was very collaborative. It was yeah. we wrote that book together. Uh, but it was just about what you're saying. I'm thinking of how he worked with people. There's the one one part mm -hmm. where you were talking about he looks in the green dot uh, when he was doing the stuff online, the green dot, and tries to, can't remember the exact words you said, but see and he would like talk into the third eye. Into the third, the third eye and yeah. see the questions uh, from a soul-to-soul -soul perspective. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, he developed that over many, many years of being able, I mean, even when we were together after his stroke, he was, we were so connected. Here we are in this beautiful home overlooking the water and the pool and Maui and, you know, but we were just bound together in that yeah. afternoon we spent together there after the stroke. One of the things after the stroke that I wondered how, he didn't say a lot about it, but that this sudden discovery of having a son and then the son coming and, and visiting, say a little bit about that and how that affected him. Well, I mean, first of all, it was a surprise mm -hmm. because uh, the woman with whom he had had the affair at Stanford had left Stanford and never told him that she was pregnant. And uh, she and her soon-to-be husband raised the son as their own. And he didn't, he never knew. That must have been... I'm I just curious if that happened to me at that stage in my life and suddenly I found there was someone else and they came and saw me, I, I think it would shake me up a bit. But maybe he was just so present that it was like, oh, and this. No, it was more than that. Uh, you know, he, I, because uh, the family ties for him had always been uh, really important. You know, he had done a lot of his early psychology work in child development. So he, he was very aware of uh, those ties. I think when he was living communally with other people, you know, he talked a lot about the kids around Millbrook. He, he was often the, the caretaker for Tim Leary's kids. And he used to 
cook and bake bread. And, you know, it was, he was very uh, parental. And I think he felt that Maharaji had not kind of put him in a family situation so that he would be freer to work on his spiritual teaching work, his own inner work. So it was really sort of a, an interesting shock when he found out he had a son. And he really was kind of uh, delighted by it, loved getting to know Peter and his uh, family. And he realized, he, you know, uh, he was an instant grandparent as well as a parent. But at at that point, I mean, he really um, kind of looked at what the feelings around that tie were. I think he wanted to let it develop in its own way, and he did, and Peter came to visit. And I think it, it was clear that they shared some really sweet characteristics in common. I think it was very rewarding for him. And, and, you know, on the, on the other hand, I think his ties to his spiritual satsang, both the Indian devotees and the Westerners who were around him were very much uh, closer and had grown over, you know, half a century. It was new and really kind of wonderful for him, but he w it was also at a stage of life where he couldn't parent in any way. And Peter was a, uh, and his family, they were, you know, full, independent yeah. beings on their own. But I think it went pretty well, considering. And, and Peter's a really wonderful person. Two chapters towards the end was my favorite chapter in being Ramdas. And I think you originally were thinking of calling it Ramdas and Incarnation or something like yeah. that. But I, I and that really does in a way say it because he talked about the soul isn't a thing. It doesn't mm -hmm. do anything, that it's really the witness that we talked about, that that is the soul is the witness. As a devotee of the path of love, the their bhakti path mm -hmm. That was his path and, and his teaching. And while the psychedelics took him beyond space and time and, and broke up some attachment, it was really that move out of time and space and then into this soul plane and the heart. And so in this chapter that I loved, and now we're close to the end, but I want to talk about it, just the awareness and the love being two sides of the coin and how, you know, early on, I think he quoted Rilke's mm -hmm. in-seeing, which yeah. I always love that, that term mm -hmm. in-seeing, uh, where awareness merges into itself, kind of. But I'd love to talk a little bit about the, the qualities of, he started out, in the psychedelic era with the question of how does one quantify consciousness? Mm. And of course, you know, now, since then, people have been looking at, well, what's called the hard problem question of how can matter, how can a piece of meat have consciousness? Yeah. And so still to this day, consciousness is undefinable. And yet he was on the forefront of the study of consciousness. 
And I'm, I'm just curious of some of the things you might want to say about that evolution of presencing and then the, the witnessing and then the being, that mm-hmm. kind of evolution that you captured it. And I'm not saying it, I don't think very well, but you really captured it in that chapter where I was, I was really touched by that. Can, can you say a little bit about that part of the journey for him and, and how that relates to all of us on our spiritual path? Well, there were things that, aspects of that that stand out for me. And obviously, you know, we could talk for more hours. <laughs> On that one, yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I'm i more in the great uh, I don't know category. Uh, this is uh, well beyond my pay grade. <laughs> well, and, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm interested in looking at the map. Yeah. You know, First off, the, the witnessing yeah. Uh, piece, which he always referred to, and I think came even from before he studied psychology and was just dealing with his own emotional turmoil and, you know, began to distance himself from himself a bit. And then psychology, particularly when he uh, underwent his own psychoanalysis and that kind of neutral observer place that is really deeply embedded in that school. And then studying Vipassana meditation, which is such a process of observing yourself and letting things go by. I think up till uh, the point I I was working with him on this uh, book, I really mistook that sense of witnessing for being part of that observer place. He said at that point, he, I, I was talking to him about the witness, and I said, you know, isn't it that neutral observer, that place that you get to in Vipassana where you're just watching it go by? And he said, no, it's part of the soul. It's really, you know, it it is that deeper self. It's not just the mind going into neutral and, and letting things go by. That's a part of it, clearly. But uh, it's a link to the deeper being, to our soul. And uh, especially since his death, since he left his body, I keep going back to that end of the Heart Sutra, which uh, he used to translate it as the, uh, the form is the form of the formless. The formless is no other than form. And that you know, allowing it all to be together here and in the vastness of awareness and love together. Is that the translation of gata gata para? No, it's the, it's it's before that. Uh, the gate gate is. Uh, Can't remember what it. Was. Going beyond, gone beyond, beyond the beyond. That's yeah. right. Oh yeah, going beyond. And the beyond. Uh, which is also what he accomplished at the end. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Beyond all going. So, aha. Uh-huh. Uh, but I think that sense of, of bringing it together and, and especially the uh, bringing together that uh, devotional, loving element that came from Maharaji, that unconditional love, 
with consciousness, with awareness, with the, the kind of awareness that comes from the Buddhist wisdom, the deeper yeah. wisdom, and that, you know, the Buddhists don't particularly talk about soul or the self or where you go to when you get to, you get burned out in nirvana. The translation of nirvana is burned out. <laughs> right. Mind like cold ashes. Yeah. But, uh, and then when you get there, it's not like, it's not like emptiness. Which, uh, I was talking to Roshi Joan Halifax about that at one point, and she said, no, my friend says the translation of that is vastness. It's not emptiness. It's just vastness. And that's the quality of that consciousness and love that it's almost like, maybe more like what the Tao is about. You know, it's just that underpinning of existence that allows us to be with all of this all the time. And as you're describing it, just being present with it all. But that presence, Ramdas kept talking about, I love it all, including the, the stains on the rug and the suffering, the suffering. And the pain in my feet from the neuropathy. And, and that route out and, you know, to the, that kind of witnessing is different from the pushing away. It's different from the just letting it be. It's that embrace is somehow more inclusive and delightful. Yes. Yes. And fun. You know, it's hard to say what's influenced you, especially when you're at our age. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so much, though, you know, that we've been through these emotional inner turmoils, outer turmoils, and the integration when, when you've been on the path for a long time, on different paths, but it's all the spiritual path. I've kind of integrated which was which i i was surprised reading this how aligned my particular work has become in working with individuals and groups and i'm kind of focused on trauma integration at this point in my life hmm. working with people uh, um you know one of my teachers work. thomas hubel calls uh karma carry-on luggage i think that's a great <laughs> description <laughs> of it <laughs> But it's, you know, this, this presencing. And yeah. I, I love that you made that distinction between the presencing because that's, that's the bringing the perception and the present and the focus into and, and like zooming in to see more clearly. Yeah. And the, the witnessing, I love how you said that because mm -hmm. for me, the, the witnessing part is not the presencing part. It, and a lot of that comes from the Vipassana work that I did yeah. for so mm -hmm. long, although I prefer the California uh, spirit rock style of Vipassana. To the yeah, Jack has <laughs> the best poetry collection of anybody I've ever found. <laughs> and But that, that place where you're meditating and 
you recognize that you're observing and you go, well, wait, am I two people? Because if I'm observing and I'm observing this person, am I two or not? And that's the split there that opens that chasm to, I, I think, the, um, the human dilemma in a way. Yeah. That that is that, that place where everything, nothing, whatever you want to call it, opens up but then there's the for me there's a third major stage and that is the integration stage which i call embracing mm -hmm. that or ramdas would call loving it all uh, i think that's about merging the, you you are merging when the subject object you know when dissolve. what you're looking at when that dissolves yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. And Maharaji kept saying all the time, I mean, he would just hold up one finger and say, Sabek, it's all one. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like, don't you see? Yeah. <laughs> and more and more people are recognizing that as the divine law, not two. Yeah. The whole, the whole um, Ad Advaita movement, the non-dual awareness movement. Mm-hmm the big move towards non-duality. I, I know my friend Pete Russell spent a fair amount of time towards the end over in Maui. Yeah, I met him with Ramdas one day on the beach. Pete's a great guy. He's a lovely guy. He's yeah. uh, been a, a good friend, and I mm. really... I really Fortunate. Yeah. I, I miss him. And I miss being in California where we used to get together and dance mm. together, actually. <laughs> <laughs> So. Well, that um, that merging in love, I think, is is really the uh, additional piece of that uh, puzzle that uh, brings it into wholeness. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, I'm still like the beginner on the <laughs> path. And so am I. Probably will be a long time. <laughs> It's interesting when students, you know, think you know something and you go, I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do you think? And I think for all of our listeners, too, though, that, that just being love, just that merging with love, can, can we, because it really helps us to uh, break loose from the boundaries of our own identity if we can just love it with awareness yeah. with loving awareness um, that that allows us to not have to fight that part of ourselves and it expands the boundaries of our identity yeah that um, um, and of course the hardest one of all of that is loving yourself yeah and Which is I where it all in, starts, too. Yeah, it is. And in that is is forgiveness also. I mean, that, that thing that Ramdas saw with Maharaji that first time that he met him, when he was, he knew that Ram, Maharaji knew everything about him, including all the shameful things that he didn't want to think about. Right. Um, and then he looks up and Maharaji is just gazing down at him with what he describes as unconditional love. And unconditional meaning, loving all of that, yeah. Yeah. and uh, that you know is the 
I think the arc of Ramdas existence and the essence of what Maharaji transmitted and ultimately of what Ramdas passed along yeah. also. And, you know, he, he was a complicated human being, as you get from the memoir. And um, on the other hand, it got really simple. Well, Ramesh, it's just a delight to be with you and spend time together talking. Yeah, about thank you, things. Michael. It's just, it's just a joy. And I hope that our listeners will go away from this thinking, what are the parts of myself that I haven't been loving, that I could love, that I could actually open my heart to and, yeah. and uh, accept and love? I hope that, uh, you know, this uh, book is sort of a useful parable mm -hmm. for other people to work with their own yeah. uh, carry-on baggage, too. Yeah, it's so human and so real. So the book is Being Ram Das and uh, Ramesh Wardas. Ramesh, it's just a delight. Mm -hmm. And I hope we can do something again sometime soon. Yeah, I love to. Okay. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thank you. Appreciate your being on the show. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.